church a cappella, I tell you what. So I needed a minute to compose myself there. Well, it's good to be back with you again. It's, I do believe this is the first time this year, but uh, I'm grateful that when I heard the, uh, the, the request come in, I responded immediately to Ricky, and I thought that this was God's providence in a way, because at the beginning of the summer, I, I almost reached out to you, and I, and I almost asked if there was any opportunities this summer to, to preach here. But then I also didn't want to step on any toes. I knew that you had uh, received a, a new pastor that was preaching here regularly. And, and so over this summer, honestly, I did a whole lot of nothing. Spent a lot of time at the beach. Spent a lot of time with my, with my mom and got to spend some time with her and the grandkids and bring some joy to her life because since I was here last, my father passed away. My uncle passed away as well. So I'm in a season of continued loss after having lost three grandparents and also now my father and my uncle. It just seemed like there was some time this summer that I needed to kind of rejuvenate and to to kind of spend a lot of quiet time with God and spend some good quality time with family as well. But I do believe that God has a purpose for everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly in our lives. And that's really what I want to come and share and encourage you with today. My my topic for this morning is about God's omnipotence, the power of God. We recognize it as being all-powerful and almighty. But I want to contrast this with my own life because I by no means am all-powerful and almighty. One of the big debates, though, that my students do have in the classroom as to whether or not I look more like Vin Diesel or The Rock One student, though, who was keen to this said, why do you put us in a false dilemma? You could look like Gru. And I told them, that's despicable. But when I was born, I I came into this world on April 23rd, 1974, weighing three pounds. If you stick out your hand, imagine a a little baby head there in the palm, and, and my feet wouldn't even come down to the break of your elbow. Three pounds, extremely unhealthy. I still have a lazy eye on my left side because that's part of the deformity that I was born with after several surgeries to repair it. This is the best they got. and I believe that God gave me a lazy eye because He knew that would be the only thing lazy about me. It's a constant reminder though that I have of this contrast between my great weakness and God's great strength. I think of some of the most powerful people in my own life, the influences that I've had, and and the first that comes to mind is my grandfather. You have to imagine this World War II veteran who was a cook and a boxer on the ships, very, very tough man. He had these tattoos all up and down his arms, and in the heyday, he could make those ladies dance. He was extremely strong and tough. I remember one time there was a hornet's nest growing on our church building. He took spray from Home Depot and just stood there right under it and sprayed it. He didn't care. He wanted to get every one of those hornets out of there. I mean, my grandfather was extremely tough. If he had skin cancer, he'd cut it off and eat it. He was one of those kind of guys that was just extremely, extremely tough. And yet, I saw his health fade over a period of time. And at 98 years old, he was laying on his couch, which would be his deathbed. 
in extreme weakness. Where the tattoos were extremely faded, you couldn't even tell what they were. He was basically skin and bone at the time that he breathed his last. And there I'm faced with contrast between what I once understood as great strength to what I was witnessing there as great weakness as far as we're concerned in our lives. We see it in in physical health. And the same with my father. My father was 350 pounds and probably just about an inch taller than I am when he was in his 20s and 30s. Now, my father was not much of an athlete, although football recruits tried to get him to play football because he was so big. Now, he wasn't about the the physical aspect. Uh, He knew that if he went to Vietnam, that he would probably be killed somewhere in the jungles out there. So he decided to eat his way out of Vietnam by gaining so much weight that he wouldn't qualify for the tests, he wouldn't have to go to war, and he could stay here in uh, California and pursue his dream of becoming a trial lawyer in Los Angeles. Well, it worked. He wrote a letter to Alan Cranston, who was the the governor at the time, and and pleaded to, to not get drafted into Vietnam, and my father got to stay home and pursue his dream at 350 pounds. I remember being impressed by my father in watching him eat two Grand Slam breakfasts one day at Denny's. The grand, one Grand Slam is enough, but two? He's a, big, he's a big man. And that's my image that I remember of my father being this really large man in a white t-shirt. That was my first memory that I had of my father. And yet to watch him digress through cancer and, and to watch him really wither away to skin and bone, I was again able to see great strength become great weakness. My mother, who is still with us today, is another example of great strength in my life. Uh, she motivated me through thick and thin and difficulties and challenges that I had developmentally as a child due to my, uh, my, my low birth weight. Uh, when I would play sports, she would always encourage me to, to continue and persevere. I had severe learning disabilities when I was a child, and the highest grade that I received when I was in elementary school was a C2. And I don't even think they have C2s anymore. Some people nowadays don't even know what a C2 is. Well, a C2 is a grade that they give you on a report card when you actually should be receiving Ds and Fs, but you try too hard, you show too much effort, but you haven't quite earned the C. C2 is what they would show as the report card to, to show the grade that this student worked really hard but didn't quite measure up. And that was me. In fact, I didn't even receive my first, uh, my first A until eighth grade art. But then when I realized that I could do it, perseverance, then my first semester at Maranatha when I was in ninth grade was straight A's. I don't know, I need a little encouragement though, a little little push, and my mom was always there. I imagine frustrated at sometimes through those elementary school years with C2s, and yet I was always encouraged to just do the best you can. Give it 100%. And my 100% might have not been what what your 100% was. But my 100% might not have yielded the results that, that, that some kids 50% might do. But I learned very young to give 100% in everything because my mom's strength was there to motivate me. And yet I'm seeing now elements of weakness and struggle in her own life because of all of the loss that we've had in our family. She's got a large house in San Clemente, but she spends most of it alone and, and with her dog and so I really felt a, a calling this summer to spend some time with her. 
and, and bring some joy to her with, with the grandkids. I also think of my grandmother, who also in her 80s was laying on her deathbed. And when I went to visit her, she said, you know, the only thing that I do anymore is pray. That's all I do. I just lay here. I can't get up. All I do is lay here and pray. And I want to encourage you that what I gained from that is not that prayer is a last resort, but that prayer needs to be a first priority. And if the only reason God allowed her to live the last five years of her life in weakness, where she could barely walk, and in the last months of her life where she couldn't even get off a couch, was to stay here and pray for us, she was a prayer warrior. And that's a symbol of strength. And yet there's this great contrast because spiritual strength laying in a deathbed, skin and bones, the physical weakness, and yet great spiritual strength. And I'm reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, when he writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. And at times I feel that I've had to witness in my life and in the lives of those that I love physical weakness, but yielding spiritual strength. See, more, the more weaker my grandmother got physically, I believe the stronger her prayer life. I learned from my mother that in the last days of my father's life, that really the last year of my father's life, that he had made renewed commitments and had strengthened prayer life in his own life more than, than, than any other time in his life there at the end. And I wonder if the physical weakness was what really was helping him yield this spiritual strength as he knew his days were coming to an end he drew closer and closer in his relationship with Jesus Christ, bringing forth a, a stronger and stronger prayer life. And I wonder if that happens with us. C.S. Lewis says that pain is, is the great megaphone that God uses to get our attention. And that very well may be the case. Today I want to focus, though, on God's power. I want to encourage you with the omnipotence of God. And this is not going to be a deep theological and a deep philosophical discourse, uh, this is going to be one of encouragement, that we would all leave here today understanding a little bit more of the way that God works in drawing into His power for our own strength. That if you're feeling weak in any area of your life, that you may leave today plugged in to the power source, which is Jesus Christ, that will give you that jolt of strength and power, not just for today, not just for the week but for all eternity. There are theological discussions, though, that happen in seminaries about the attributes and nature of God. And theologians, really, they, they divide the characteristics of God into, into two different categories. One being the communicable categories of God's attributes, and those are some of the things that we find ourselves sharing and experiencing in, in more of a, a, an everyday activity as, as we interact with each other. 
And then there are the non-communicable or incommunicable attributes of God that are, are there and real, and we do experience them, but we might not share them as, as deeply. Um, as in areas of communicable examples, justice, that's something that we can exercise. I can be just or I can be unjust. Uh, I can exercise grace. I can exercise mercy. I, I can forgive people. And certainly God has all of these attributes that are communicable in the sense that we experience them with each other as well. That I can exercise grace and mercy and justice to you. But there are what theologians call the incommunicable attributes, and I think these would be the omnis. Because as powerful as I might be, I might be able to bench press 300 pounds, but that's not, that's not omnipotence. I don't share that quality with God by any means. And I think about others that we're going to talk about next week, like omniscience. I might learn a lot and read and study deeply every day of my life, but I don't have omniscience. I certainly can't look into the motives and understanding of individual people at the depths that, that God can. I don't know your heart, but God does. And, and so we, we talk about omnipresence. No, I can only be in one place at one time, but God can be everywhere at the same time. And so today's focus really is about omnipotence. And I want to tell you, the more I think about God's power, the more my mind is blown. It's just one of those attributes that just, I think about it, it leads me directly to worship. Because I can't think of any other response to thinking about God's omnipotence and power than to just fall on my knees and, and, and worship Him. But I would ask, not that we answer this question out loud, but just in the quietness of your own heart. If you were to describe the omnipotence of God, what would that look like? What would that description look like? For those of you who are artists and, and might do even a better job than words by, by, by drawing pictures, what would a picture look like of God's omnipotence? When you close your eyes and think about God being all-powerful, what image comes to your mind? How do you even picture that? If you are an orator and you like words like I do, what words would you choose to describe the omnipotence and power of God? It's an amazing undertaking just to pause and think about that for a moment. And when I think about it, I can't help but turn to Scripture and see how the, the, the writers of Scripture, how, what kind of language they use to describe the power of God. I want to first start off with Ezekiel. Now in Ezekiel, Ezekiel finds himself in Babylonian exile. They were taken away from the promised land and taken away from, uh, from shall I say, uh, uh, Jerusalem and, and Israel. And they're out there in Babylon, Babylonian exile. And yet still there, away from the place that they would call home, he has this vision. Ezekiel 1, starting with verse 4, says this, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud of flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like, bur like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, 
they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. And on the left side, a face of an ox. And each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side. And each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead, wherever the the spirit would go and they would go and without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creature was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creature sped back and forth like flashing lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance of the structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked, like, looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced, and the wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the Spirit would go, They would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings." Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapsus lazuli. A deep blue metaphoric rock is what it is. And, uh, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from the, what appeared to be at his waist. Up he looked, his glowing metal, as it was full of fire. And that from, da- from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. It identifies what this description is, though. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of the one speaking. A student once came to me very concerned. said, Mr. Masiska, is there aliens and UFOs in the Bible? I said, no. I said, where do you get that from? I said, Ezekiel 1. I said, let's read it together. So we read the description that we just read with wheels and fire and all kinds of 
weird-looking things coming out of the sky with heads and animal faces and all these wings. Sounds like it could be aliens. But no, it describes for us exactly what it is. That this is an image of the glory of the Lord. And we say, again, if, if you were to picture the glory of the Lord, the power of God, the omnipotence of God in some, some image, how would you describe it? Well, Ezekiel in some way is describing that glory and power of God in a magnificent way, and this is the language that he uses. Something a little bit odd and foreign to us, but it's the image that he's experiencing in some form or another. In Daniel 4, I'm sorry, Daniel 10, 4 through 6, we get another description. And while there is debate among theologians as to whether this next description in Daniel 10, 4 through 6 is that of an angel or the glory of the Lord, I'll let the theologians debate that in more detail. Uh, for now, I want to just point out the language that's used to describe this amazing vision of either the creation of God, which would be an angel, or a manifestation, some forth, of God himself. While the theologians debate that, just listen to the language that Daniel uses to describe whatever it is that he's seeing here. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt, fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, the eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam in burnished bronze, his voice like the sound of a multitude. Well, the description that Daniel uses here sounds quite a bit like some of the language and words that Ezekiel was using to describe his description. And again, while theologians might debate in the seminaries and in the commentaries about whether this is a description of an angel or the glory of God, there really is no debating the description found in Revelation 1, 13 through 15, which is the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen to the description here that John has in his vision as he writes Revelation. Revelation 1, 13 through 15 says, And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like that of the sound of rushing waters. That's a description, at least from John's experience, of what he's experiencing with Jesus. An image of some sort. But in Colossians 2.9, it makes it very, very clear to us. In fact, Paul's language couldn't be more clear here in Colossians 2.9 when he says, For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And if we believe that, that would also include omnipotence, wouldn't it? That Jesus Christ is all-powerful. And I believe that full-heartedly. In fact, in Daniel's vision that he has in Daniel 7 now, 13 and 14, Jesus would later actually make the connection to this verse and to this reference in Daniel 7. For in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, Daniel says, 
talking about his vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, just that alone is a description that we would understand to be of Jesus. But even more so, there's a direct relation that Jesus gives to this message in Mark 14, 61 through 62. When Jesus was taken before the high priest and asked by Caiaphas, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus responded, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. In that reference of you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven was a direct relation back to Daniel. To say, remember Daniel's reference. Remember Daniel's prophecy. Well, I am that Son of Man. Now, that would make people really angry. In fact, I propose that that would make the Jewish people angry enough to want to crucify Jesus because they would make that connection with blaspheming, claiming equality with God, but I have never seen Jesus as a blasphemer because if Jesus is telling the truth, He is God in human flesh. Paul is right. All the fullness of deity is in bodily form in the person of Jesus Christ. So when he's making a reference to being that son of man back in Daniel 7, before Caiaphas and the high priests and those that were on trial, putting him on trial, well, he's telling the truth. And, well, they didn't like what he had to say, and so there was a big uproar to let's get rid of Jesus as fast as we possibly can. Especially before the Sabbath and before Passover, this biggest holiday that we have on the Jewish calendar, Let's get rid of them before the Jewish celebration. But it was all because of these phrases that he was doing. And and not only the words that he was saying, making reference to being the son of man, but also the things that he was doing. I mean, raising Lazarus from the dead alone is 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 a big enough event, not only to demonstrate that you have the power of God, that you are omnipotent to be able to raise the dead, As much as I would love to bring back my father and have one more conversation with him, just to say thank you for all the things that he's done for me, that I'm realizing more and more now that he's gone than I ever even did when he was here. I don't have that power to be able to go to his graveside and say, Dad, come out. (laughs) No. But Jesus did. Jesus would say, Lazarus, come out, and, well, what would happen? Now, my my son just recently asked me, and I think it's because it's becoming fall and it's getting closer to Halloween. He said, Dad, is there mummies in the Bible? (laughs) And what a great opportunity to kind of share with him the story of Lazarus. Because Lazarus is there wrapped up, dead guy, in a tomb. And when he comes out of the tomb, what do they do? They take off the linens. So there very well may be an example of a story of a mummy there. (laughs) At least for the little kids that are asking those questions. Maybe some adults are asking those questions as well. 
But really what I want to focus on for the rest of our time today is an example, one that stands out to me of Jesus himself exercising this omnipotent power. Now you can find it through all scripture. We could talk about the resurrection, but I remember last time I was here, we we spent about three weeks just on the resurrection alone. And there are many examples of great healings and the forgiveness of sin and all of these amazing things that, that Jesus has done. It's very difficult for me to focus on one. But I'd rather focus on one and get a little bit deeper than to just list a whole bunch of different ones and, and kind of leave you at the, at the surface level. So I'm going to focus today on Mark 4, 35 through 41, when Jesus calms the storm. Because I think we'll find something very practical here to apply to our own lives as we leave here this morning. In Mark 4, 35 through 41, it says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now that question, who is this, even the wind and the waves obey him, is a question that every human being is going to have to answer for themselves in the quietness of their own hearts. Who is this that has the power to bring Lazarus out of the grave? Who is this who has the power to say, be still, and this furious storm just stops? I mean, it's amazing to me that the the exercise of power that Jesus has, but... It humbles me and brings me to worship because I'm realizing the more I study Jesus, the more I see the omnipotence of God unfolding before our eyes. Jesus clearly is omnipotent, powerful enough to experience and and, and to share this experience with his followers to demonstrate that he has the power over the weather. It's amazing to me. You think about this, this hurricane Category 5, even though my understanding is Donald Trump couldn't recognize whether it was a Category 5 or Category 4. He, he'd been on record saying he never heard of an F5 before. Maybe follow the news and see that. But just recently, we've had a huge hurricane hit the East Coast. And we're in prayer. God, can you redirect this? God, could you stop this? Could you help those people that are suffering through this great storm and Yet that hurricane goes through and destroys a lot of land. We've seen this and experienced it with a lot of different natural disasters. Be it earthquakes in some communities or hurricanes in others, tsunamis in in different places. Seems like we're more in tune, I believe, to what's happening weather-wise. Maybe it's true that the weather is getting worse. Or maybe it's just that through the aspect of the internet and having everything available on our phones immediately uh, we're able to to see and experience really what's happening across the country very, very quickly. And we're able to actually trace those storms that are coming through. 
It's amazing to me that what technology has done. But it also makes me wonder, the God who can silence the storm here didn't necessarily silence it in other places. He lets the storm happen. He lets the devastation happen. And we have to ask, why? I'm going to get to why in a moment, but I find that discovered that, that sailors in the North Atlantic have witnessed an interesting phenomenon as they're looking out there in the ocean and they're seeing icebergs going against the wind. That's odd. How could icebergs travel against the wind? Well, the current underneath is what pushes those icebergs against the wind. And I look at the wind from this example in Mark 4 as, yes, real wind. I think this is a real storm definitely happening that God silences the storm here through the power and the work of Jesus Christ. But I've also used storms as metaphors for our own struggle and our own burdens in life, whatever they may be. And maybe this analogy will help you as you persevere in your relationship with God. Because what's happening in the current is what's happening underneath. What's happening in the current is what's happening inside my soul at the depths of my relationship with Jesus Christ. And when that is extremely strong, now how do I get the spiritual strength? By spending quality time with Jesus. Prayer. Meditation. Devoted to His Word. Studying it deeply and also reading it just to experience it as it is. But whatever it may be that I'm able to, 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 to connect more deeply with God is going to be that current that pushes me through. And that current is going to push me against the wind of the biggest storms. Because the storms really are outside. And inside the soul is the current. So is your current flowing in the same direction as Jesus Christ? Is your current going faster and faster and stronger and stronger and deeper and deeper because of your relationship with Jesus Christ? And if so, you may find not that the storm in your life is being silenced as it was here in Mark 4, but that you have the strength as an iceberg to go against that wind to fight through that storm, whatever it may be. Sure, Jesus calms the storms, but why does he not calm the storm in our own life? I wanted to share a story of something that happened to me this summer as I did a whole lot of nothing. I'm still in tune to what God is doing in my life. And one of the things that I, I love about sharing God's word in churches is it keeps me in tune not only to regularly studying the Word deeply, but also to, to be on the lookout in my own life for examples of things that I can apply in my own life that I could then come and share with the congregations that I'm speaking with. And This last summer, I spent a lot of time at the beach, which is to me the same thing as doing a whole lot of nothing. Because for me, I go to the beach and I'm teaching my kids how to, how to body surf. That was the first thing. I want to keep them safe in, in the ocean and let them know how to, how to maneuver around the waves. And two of my children, uh, my oldest two children, are, are getting a little bit more bold and they want to try the body boards. 
So I take them out there and I'm teaching them the safeties of the ocean and and how to do certain things. I've got the youngest son that's going to run out to the water and put his foot in and as soon as the wave comes, he runs back. And then he'd get a little deeper, maybe up to his knees and then the wave comes, runs back. So he's growing in his trust of the ocean. Uh, But my son and daughter grew enough this summer to really be able to enjoy the bodyboards and get out there and and do some swimming. On one particular day though, my... uh, my son and daughter were out there without their boards. They were just swimming. And I noticed that my daughter and son were getting out a little bit too far. And my daughter was swimming in, but not really going anywhere. And I'm sitting there on the beach, and my wife is next to me, and I start having a discussion. Should I or should I not go out and get my daughter? Because she's swimming hard, and she's exercising it and, and going against the current, but she's, she's doing okay. She's not like drowning or anything. If she was drowning or I felt like she was really getting sucked way out, I would have been the first one out there before she could even blink. But I'm in, in one of those points as a father where I'm kind of in the middle. I'm sitting there on the, on the shore and I'm watching my daughter from the distance and I'm thinking to myself, how much trouble is she really in? Is she in enough trouble for me to run out there and get her? Or should I just let her struggle because I know the struggle produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope that she might make it in. So I decide not to go out there this time. Let her struggle. But soon enough, a, a surfer comes along and offers the surfboard to my daughter and drags her in. My daughter comes pouncing into the, to the shore and stands right next to me and says, Dad, how come you didn't come save me? It was in her mind, how come I didn't come save her? And my immediate response was, I didn't think you were in enough trouble for me to come out and save you. I felt like you were strong enough to kind of do this without me coming out and saving you. And look at you, you made it safely on the shore and you did it. And I wonder if if every time a child fell on the ground when they're trying to learn how to walk, if we picked them up every single time and and held their hand every time they took a step, they would never learn to walk. But when my daughter was first learning to walk, I I let her take a step and then fall down on her bottom. Push herself back up. Another step and her knee would fall, and then back down on her bottom again. And she'd get back up and she'd do this little shake dance, you know, try to walk. And then she'd fall back down again. But my daughter's nine years old now. It's her ninth birthday. And, uh, Well, she can walk and run and play soccer and do all kinds of things. Her legs develop the strength eventually for her to walk on her own. I wasn't going to be the father to stand by and pick her up every single moment. And likewise, I wonder if God's the same way. If we're out there in the ocean and we're in our struggle and we think that the waves are too big, and God's right there with you saying, you got this. I'm not going to come out and 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 bear hug you like the lifeguard this time, and drag you in, but I'm right there with you. Well, two days later, we're back at the beach again, because we spent a lot of time at the beach, and this time I'm out in the water with my children, and I'm probably about as as far away in the water as uh, as I am from Ricky right now, and this particular day, the, the water was a little bit choppier than the day before, or two days before, and there were actual rip currents out there, so now I see, not that far as I'm in the water with my children, that they are actually in a rip current, getting sucked out further and further and further. 
And this time, I'm not going to say, you can do this on your own. This is dangerous. I look up and the lifeguard is looking at us through his glasses. and I just go right to my kids. And I wrap one arm around my son. I wrap another arm around my daughter. And I just start kicking and bringing them in. And when a wave finally comes, I take my daughter and I push her in because she knows how to body surf. And she takes that wave all the way in. And now I'm with my oldest son and we're out there getting sucked out by the rip current. I see the lifeguard coming out. And, and to be honest with you, I'm always a little bit embarrassed when the lifeguard comes out for me because I'm thinking I can do this. But the lifeguard comes out and he says, I saw that there were children involved and I'm here to help any way that I possibly can. But by then, I had already dragged my son in and we made it in safely. But here's the other key. As I said before, sometimes on some days, God is looking at us and our struggle and it doesn't feel like he's intervening because he's saying, you got this. But there are other struggles that we have where God is right there to bear hug us and bring us out of the danger immediately. And I don't know what you're experiencing in your life, but I'm grateful that the lifeguard tower is empty. I'm grateful that through the work and the power of Jesus Christ, that he is right there in the ocean of life with us. Swimming, treading water, and he's not just a safety net. He's a loving father who wants to be out there in the ocean with you, just like I loved being out there in the ocean with my children. And so my encouragement to you really is to keep on swimming. Keep on swimming in a world that feels like it's sucking us out, sucking us out into danger. There are rip currents all over the place. And we ask this deep question, why does Jesus not calm the storm in my own life? He's powerful enough here in Mark 4 to calm the storm. If he can do it physically, I know that he can do it emotionally. I know that he can do it spiritually. I know that he can calm what's going on in my, in my life. And yet, while he has the power to be still and it be so, sometimes it's beneficial for us to understand that he's right there in the rip current with us. He's never left us or forsaken us. And just as the empty lifeguard stand represents the lifeguard who's already out there in the water with you, don't think of God as being on the lifeguard stand looking at you with goggles trying to figure out whether he should come rescue you or not. He's swimming right there with you. If he wraps his bare arms around you and drags you in, it's great. If he says, I'm right here with you, but I see you all the time. I'm not taking my omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent eyes off of you. I see you and I got you all the time, but he is going to let you swim in what feels like on your own because such a swim develops more character and perseverance. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we're grateful that you are omnipotent. We're grateful that Jesus Christ bears all these qualities of deity in bodily form. And he also is omnipotent. And for that, Lord, we are grateful that we serve an omnipotent God for which, for me personally, brings me to my knees in a spirit, an attitude, and acts of worship.
it blows my mind to think that an omnipotent, all-powerful God would love me as much as you do. And Lord, I'm grateful to know that you never leave us or forsake us. It might feel like we're swimming out there in the ocean by ourselves. In reality, though, we're not. You're the lifeguard who's already left the lifeguard tower. The cross is empty. And because the cross is empty, we know that you are right here with us, engaging in this life with us, experiencing the ocean in a way that we'll never experience it because you created it. And so, Lord, we know that you have the power to calm physical storms. We know that you have the power to calm whatever might be going on in our lives, the difficult decisions that we have to make, the difficult journeys and struggles in life with temptation, the difficult aspects of possible regret, feelings of I wish I could go back and say goodbye one more time. Whatever it is that stirs us and makes us just feel like we're in a whirlwind, whatever makes us feel like we're in a rip current getting sucked further and further away from shore, we trust that you are the loving Father who's right there with us. And this morning, we say thank you. In your name I pray. Amen.